If you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're continuing our time going through the gospel of Luke. And this is my third week here teaching uh, through the Gospel of Luke. I know Pastor Justin and Pastor Marcus um, have been teaching through it for a while. Um, I began in Luke uh, thirteen thirty one, where Jesus is lamenting over the unbelief of the people of Jerusalem. Um, the Pharisees in particular, he is having run-ins with them. And in, in verses 31 through 35, they are warning Jesus that Herod might kill him. Herod is the ruler of that area. And Jesus tells them, I always love this saying, he says, go and tell that fox. Go and tell that sly, meaningless, inconsequential man that I'm going to do what God has called me here to do, and when that is done, then my time will come. Remember, as we know, that Jesus' life is not taken from him, but he gives it freely. We see then that Jesus is then invited to a meal um, with other Pharisees and lawyers, and once again, they're trying to trap him, asking him if it's okay for them to heal on the Sabbath day. Um, uh, you know, hey, this, this guy has dropped, or Jesus asked them, hey, is it okay? There's a guy that has swelling in his extremities. And he asks him, is it okay for me to heal on the Sabbath? And they don't know how to answer, and so he does. And then he warns them from taking places of honor, but rather to embrace the way of humility. And we're going to continue on that theme as we continue through this chapter. It's interesting that Jesus and his parables are becoming much less mysterious. They're becoming much more pointed and clear as to what he is meaning and to whom he is directing these meanings to. Now, mind you, it's not coming from, oh, I can't believe he said that. He's not a commentator on Fox News or, or CNN News or CNNBC getting all gripey about things. He's coming from a place of compassion and deep concern and longing. I wanted my main point this morning to be don't miss it, but that sounds a lot like just do it. And I want to make it less about what we have to do and more th about how we should respond to Jesus and his kingdom. The main point I want to talk about this morning is this. We must turn from idolatry and pursue humility in order to fully enjoy God and his kingdom. We must turn from idolatry and pursue humility in order to fully enjoy God and his kingdom. I, I want to put it this way. An idol is anything or anyone that we value higher than God himself. And that goes beyond us saying just the right words and giving the right answers, but to the real reflection of the value and purpose and direction of our own lives. We often should find ourselves asking the question, what gospel is my life preaching? Not merely just with our words, but with our mind and our actions and our affections. What captures your attention, your affection, your loyalties? And I don't know about you, but I can often answer and say, it's probably not God. And that's why repentance isn't a one-time moment at the beginning of our journey, but an ongoing posture of redirecting and reorienting our lives back towards the one in whom is worthy of it all. And so as Jesus is giving these parables and is telling of a man who gives a, a feast and a banquet, those who have been invited first and who do not come and he calls out to those who were not yet invited and brought into the table. He's not merely just speaking of, here is etiquette for a party. Braylon recently bought an etiquette book. It's fabulous. Some of the stuff that you're supposed to do, I have not done. I am one of the most unkept, rude people, according to this guy who wrote this book. 
And so are most of you. Did you know that? Well, now you know. You're welcome. Please and thank you. All right, so I want to begin by framing this idea through 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. If you want to turn there, you may, but I'll read it slowly enough. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I know what we might be thinking. There is mixed economic status in this room, but compared to the majority of the world, all of us in here are factually wealthy. And so as we begin to understand this idea of money, the problem with, with money being a root of all kinds of evil is motive, is affection, is direction. It's less about the actual substance. Money is a gift from God intended to be a tool. It's a resource. I tell guys who are struggling with loving money and finding their security and hope in money to go to their garage or shed and grab their gas can and bend down and start bowing to it and saying prayers to it. They look at me like I'm crazy and I say, well, that's what you do when you love money more than you love God. You're worshiping fuel. Now, some of you might have a lot of fuel and some of you might have not very much fuel at all, but ultimately you're misdirecting your affections, your hope, and your rescue from the wrong resource. That's idolatry. You think of motivation. You think about why we structure our lives the way that we do. What are we hoping for? What are we saving for? What are we fearful about as we approach age 67? This isn't a talk specifically just about money, but it is a talk focusing on idolatry. And oddly enough, a lot of idolatry has financial value attached to some extent. There are implications that weasel in and lead to our unbelief. I know it's true for me. And so as we view this teaching of Jesus and encouragement for those at this wedding feast and, and the valuation of others, and that's really important, the valuation, what is the worth of people? What, how do we value people? It seems to me that we tend to give more permission and not encouragement, but we'll just say permission for ill behavior depending on what the person can do for us or the power they appear to have. And for those who seem useless or worthless to us, we can overdose on condemnation for them. Now, if that's not mixed up in some sort of valuation, I don't know what is. I mean, the whole thing about an a baby, unborn baby's life is based upon the financial drain that child might bring or the inconvenience it brings about. And I know it's not that simple. I know that's a complex issue. And it's not one to be tried about or to fight just on Facebook about. But to understand, even in those discussions, finances are brought up, are they not? And so if we want to begin to understand the rewiring and reorientation into God's kingdom as opposed to living toward building our own, we've got to understand that this foundational piece is something that we must all constantly take assessment of. And one of the greatest 
One of the greatest ways to prevent our souls from becoming too hopeful and sure in our resources is to live postured with a gratitude to Jesus with generosity. The why behind generosity isn't to keep God at bay or to pacify him for his anger. After all, God's not broke. Perhaps the opportunity for generosity and grace and giving is more about God's grace to us than us giving something to God. And maybe that's the first step for some of us in beginning to view other people in rehumanizing people that are different than us, that believe different than us, that think different than us, that vote different than us, is to come around the common core of our unity, which is Jesus Christ himself. That doesn't mean there, is, there aren't things that are true that are hard to take and hard to believe and hard to follow, but what it does mean is that all of us come equal to before God, needy of grace and forgiveness and acceptance. And the reality is, the church in South Korea, after the Korean World War II and Korean War, was one of the fastest growing movements of gospel growth that we've seen in history. In fact, about a decade ago, it was sending out more missionaries than the rest of the world behind the United States, which is much larger. But over the last five to ten years, it has started cooling off as younger people are leaving the church, and some for good reason. There's a lot of large churches and a lot of corruption that happens at times. But when you look at it objectively, the church in South Korea, as it became one of the most top 10 to top 20 wealthy nations in the world, became pacified and lulled to sleep by their financial comfort. And there wasn't as much perceived need for God's help and provision and grace. And so Jesus, let's pick up with him in verse 12. He's at this party and now turns to the host and he says this. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed if some of you are hunting for a blessing, underline that verse. We don't tend to like the actual promises of blessing in the Bible, right? Because it says, those of you who take on widows and orphans in their time of distress, you will be blessed. Things like that are like, ugh. And we're going to talk about blessing in a minute because we have really perverted that word in our day. But we're not there yet. He's not saying never have your friends over, right? Jesus isn't saying become a social pariah, antisocial, mean guy, and cut off all your relationships. He's saying, though, to this guy who's a Pharisee with these other Pharisees and lawyers around saying, hey, you want to be blessed? You got to think differently about what, what blessing is. What does it mean to be blessed and to then to be a blessing to others? He says, hey, the blessing of, of feeding your friends and your brothers and your relatives and your rich neighbors... They'll bring you back and they'll invite you back to it. I mean, you're going to get repaid. But when you give a feast, invite those who could never repay you. Later in the scripture, it talks about taking care of orphans and widows, those who cannot repay you. Now, why in the world would Jesus be encouraging us to give so sacrificially without even necessarily putting it on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook? Because that's who we were. 
You might externally have your life together and even in your pocketbook have your life together, but each of us are crippled and broken. Before we meet Christ, we're spiritually dead. And he brought us to his table. And so Jesus is teaching them the way of the kingdom more than he's teaching them just a subtle rebuke over their socioeconomic behavior. He's saying the way you're viewing people and the way you're valuing people and the way you're needing from people is not going to be life-giving long-term. It's going to be actually, in turn, life-taking. If you want to live with a life-giving posture, then go to those who can never repay you because, after all, you're living as a reflection of what God has already done for you. And you will be blessed. It comes with a promise. Because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. At the time of Jesus, the one who really is the audience we ought to be pleasing will be the one that ultimately brings the reward. And so what we see here is God's blessing is the reward of humility. See, many of us think our good behavior, our right standing in the community, the likes on our posts, that's what ultimately brings God glory because, God, aren't we looking good for you? No offense. I've been working out for several months now, but I'm still not invited to a bodybuilding magazine shoot. I still don't make the cause look good. I'm okay with that. But the reality is, is even on your best day, compared to the righteousness of God, I don't know about you, but I find myself lacking. Yet we try to spruce ourselves up and appear more godly than we are so that we look good for God. Man, wouldn't it be good if Tiger Woods got saved? I literally had someone at camp tell me that one time. Imagine the impact he could have. But I'll tell you what, yeah, maybe he will and maybe that'll do something, but I also remember my friend Bob who's now been with the Lord who died of brain cancer, and I think I told you all about Bob before. He's a former bike gang guy. He used to stab people and tell you this close to your face that he did so. But that guy would share the gospel with anyone. He had no fear because he knew that they were invited to the table also. No matter who they were. I, I remember sitting at Starbucks with Bob one time, so embarrassed. I'm a preacher. So embarrassed because there's a huge line behind us. And you know people in Starbucks, I don't care how godly they are, if they have to wait for their frappuccino, they're not happy. Bob sits there and he just had this uncanny discernment and he, he, looked, he looked at this girl and said, has anyone told you today God loves you? And she said, well, not, not today, but I know. And he said, but do you also know that through Christ he likes you? She starts crying right there. And I'm like, Bob, there's a line. She's a wreck. <laughs> I mean, this girl's like, Woo! Bob wasn't afraid to invite people to the table right where they were. God's blessing is a reward for humility. Let's talk about humility. John Piper um, says it this way, humility begins with a subordination to God in Christ. So it begins, humility begins with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdoms in Proverbs. But John Piper says that submission to Christ and, and the Lord, that he is God, we are not, is the beginning of humility. And he goes on to say that humility does not feel a right to better treatment than Jesus got. Humility does not feel that it ought to be treat, treated better than Jesus. And easy to say, 
But if you go look at how Jesus was treated, yes, he got some fanfare for a while, but then his best friends turned on him and ultimately led to him being killed. G.K. Chesterton puts it this way, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself and undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. In the age of post-modernity and post-post-modernity, now we are doubtful of God and really convinced about what we feel and what we think. And humility is, God, I don't necessarily understand, but I know you're God and I know you're bigger and I got to trust that even in the midst of some mystery that you are remaining faithful to us and with us. So humility, but blessing. See, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament mindset of blessing predominantly was stuff and land. You got money, you got wealth, you got land. It was still ultimately the presence of God. But, but as you read the Old Testament, there's this idea that God's blessing is shown solely at times through wealth and, and property. But the New Testament mindset is that God's blessing is actually God himself. That God became flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a life we could never live. He died a death that we deserved. He rose again, defeating sin, death, and Satan so that through him we might have eternity with God beginning now. That's blessing. That the almighty God would choose to condescend himself to become a substitute so that through him, through trusting in him alone, we could be made right relationally with God and we could have God now. When you're at that moment where you can no longer forgive, you feel God will remind you and empower you by his spirit. When you're at that moment where you're fighting with your spouse and you see no way forward, God will give you the strength to die to yourself because he died first. When you're wondering where the next Meal is going to come from. He will provide a way and sometimes help you humble yourself to ask for help. Friends, the greatest thing about the kingdom is the king himself. That's the greatest gift. And we forget that. We forget that. We want, we want God's hand, but not his face. We want his power, but not his presence. My friends, that's idolatry. And I'm, as I was preparing this week, I'm like, golly, I'm just going to have to repent in front of all the church and say, I'm a hypocrite. I have to have my own altar calls at my desk. Since I'm ordained, I pray for myself. I don't know how that works. What that does mean is it's an invitation to, to fall forward, to die a little more, to sacrifice a bit more, to love a little bit more deeply, to risk a little bit more. See, reality today is the, the stuff that gets the, the news and the media's attention is that if you have enough faith, then you'll be wealthy and healthy. That's called the prosperity gospel, and that gospel is no gospel at all. It's bad news. Because if you can have everything you want now, then what's the point of having eternity with God later? That's exalting the created thing over the creator. Oh God, if I trust you enough, you'll make my created body and my created bank account more life-giving than you yourself. Any of you own businesses or lead a business or an organization, super easy, right? 
Any of you lead your home or family? Piece of cake. Any of you have a hard time leading yourself? Right? The blessing isn't God's rewards. The blessing is God. And I'm not trying to be obscure and out there. What I'm saying is all of a sudden when you would normally act one way and the Lord gives you redirection another way, it's almost like the wind shifting for a ship, changing the direction of the sails. When all of a sudden you're able to let the guy cut you off who has a bumper sticker for the opposing college, you don't have homicidal thoughts. But you turn to pray for him. Still might be like a psalm spite prayer, but still it's prayer. Lord, that you might overcome my enemies. Imprecatory prayers. But the true blessing we've been afforded is a relationship with God. And to experience his presence and his power. And his provision. And his care. I would rather have some real, meaningful, life-giving, God-centered relationships than all the possessions in the world. And be alone. Yet one of the top epidemics in our country today, they say, is loneliness, even over heart disease. There's a relational problem and an idolatry issue that we in the church need to turn from. Created things rather than the creator himself. But he says this invitation is given not just to those who can reciprocate, who can pay back, but given to those who can't. And that's good news for all of us here. He's giving them his guidance to say, hey, those who can't repay you, that's who's invited to the kingdom. That's who can come. Not those who think they can pay their own way or pay me back. If you're here this morning like, man, God gave me a great start, but now I'm riding on my own. God is not a set of training wheels. God is the whole bike. He's not there just when you're getting started until you figure it out. He is there all the way through the entire journey. So we have to reorient our thinking because this invitation shifts as we have a different understanding of the kingdom because the kingdom way is understanding that we have been given everything so we have no additional needs to be met by others. Therefore, we are free to love rather than use. We're free to give rather than take. We're free to die rather than always fighting to live because the way of the kingdom is different. He goes on to say in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. You ever had that friend that likes to change the subject when things get hard? Man, how about those Astros? Depends on the week, right? Amen. It really depends. It can be a source of joy, a source of grief. But this guy just pipes in, blessed are those who will eat in the bread of the kingdom. All right, hey, Bob, how's your wife? No, we're going to stay here. Jesus keeps pushing. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. So he already sent out the save the dates. Sent out the Evite or whatever you're using these days. And he got the RSVPs. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, the second invitation, hey, guys, you've RSVP'd. You said you're going to be there. It's time to show up. Time to come. Send his servant to say to those who, servant, to say to those who have been invited, come for everything is now ready. Now's the time. Don't miss it. But they all alike began to make excuses. Hmm, sounds familiar. See, there is a host of the banquet that Jesus is referring to and a servant that had been sent himself 
to a group of people who had been originally invited and through their religion had said, I am identified with and remain with the commitment I made to the invitation given to me through God's covenants before. But all of a sudden now they have excuses. Well, you're not the Messiah. You're just leading the people astray. So I'm just, I'm decoding a little bit, but it's pretty obvious of where he's going here. Come now, everything is ready, but they all like begin to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it, real estate. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Tractors, let's call them tractors. All right. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Marriage juke. Marriage. Mm. Can't come. So the second thing I want to point out here is we can enjoy God through his provisions. They're a gift to help us enjoy God, but must turn from enjoying his provisions more. We can enjoy God through his created things. God has entrusted us his creation to enjoy. Remember in the garden he gave us all of those things that we needed to enjoy with him. So Jesus isn't teaching your stuff is bad. He's saying enjoying your stuff more than the creator of your stuff, you're going to miss out. And that's, that's, you're out of touch. He's not saying real estate or tractors or oxen or even spouses are bad. I once heard of a man who all but divorced his wife to go overseas to do a mission because God told him to abandon his family and leave them to provide for themselves. Um, I don't really have to qualify any of that. That's not what God said. Because it goes against what God has already said in providing and caring for your family. If you're unable to take care of your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So that was a gospel of omission, which is a false gospel. So they were invited, they RSVP'd, they gave excuses. Notice, none of these excuses are bad. None of them are bad. Like, hey, I bought land. Nothing wrong with real estate. Hey, I bought some oxen. Nothing wrong with cattle. Hey, I got a wife. God made marriage. It makes God happy when we get married. And God's happy when we stay faithfully single. It's a good thing. But it's not the ultimate thing. At this point, when the ultimate one is calling them to the ultimate place and the ultimate time, they're too busy. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, do I enjoy God for his provisions? And so is my level of love and commitment to God based upon how much or how little he's given me at the moment? Or do I enjoy God through his provision? And one of the convicting things for me is at times when God has kept his promise and has provided either emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, whatever it is, I'm surprised. And rather than just beating myself up for lacking faith, it is an opportunity to acknowledge God You've done what you said you would do. And so maybe I'm not God, thank God. I do believe, help me in my unbelief. And so the question we have to ask is who or what gets my yes first? Is it my job? Is it my money? Is it my friends? Is it my family? Is it my hobbies? Is it my marriage? Now, while I shared one extreme of a guy leaving his family, abandoning them to go do ministry... There are many other people who hide behind their family and don't do any ministry at all. 
Now, there's phases of lives and season for everything, and so this is not me being hard on you. But if you've come to the table, if you've come to the altar, and you've tasted and seen that he is good, he's not just calling you for later. He's calling you to enjoy the kingdom and participate in it now. And so he goes on and says, verse 21, So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Anybody who knows etiquette back then knows that they don't bring those type of people to these type of parties. People who throw these types of parties invite people a little bit less wealthy than them just so they can get some glory, but have enough so they can reciprocate in some way. So you don't bring people who, by society's terms, are useless to the party. You don't do that. That looks bad on you. And Jesus is saying, hey, the way that you live in freedom and joy, the way the master is doing it, it goes out to those who objectively look useless. So we're going to go out and find the Jewish people who haven't been living religiously in the city, and we're going to go rescue them and bring them in. We're going to go to those who are living in prostitution, those who are living as thieves, those who are living um, in addictions, those who are broken and fallen and far off from God. We're going to bring them in. Go tell them the party's open. They need to come. And so the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room, still more room. Apparently the master has a big banquet hall. And so he goes on and says, and the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel the people to come and that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Don't miss it. He's saying beyond just the broken, fallen away, culturally Jewish, born into Jewish families who are not walking in obedience, bring those in. And hey, go out beyond where the Samaritans are the half-Jewish people, half-Gentile people, and go to the non-Jewish people altogether, those who we would consider dirt or rubbish or dogs, and tell them they're invited too. We see this happen in Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes, after looking at visions, to welcome Cornelius, a Gentile leader, into the kingdom. This is fine. As he lamented in the last chapter over Jerusalem's unbelief and the rejection of the gospel, he's now coming and saying, fine, they're not going to come. This banquet hall will be filled. This banquet will bring glory to the one who invites and great joy and satisfaction to those who probably have never had such a great experience. He sends out to the broken, to the needy, to the far off, to those who are ungodly. And today, friends, he is inviting us to his banquet table as well. Whether you've been religious in the past or you've never had faith before, today is a day God is saying through Jesus Christ, come to the banquet table. Come and taste and enjoy. Come to the place where you're accepted. Come to the place where you're given life. It's easy to take for granted our seat at the table and ignore the master's command to invite others. He told his servant, go and get them. For I tell you, none of these men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Those who are rejecting, those who are turning away from, those who have built their own banquets will get what they 
have chosen. The way of the kingdom of God is not about status or getting your act together or getting right with God or getting your life right, then coming to God. The way of the kingdom is acknowledging that none of us have our life together, that all of us like sheep have gone astray, that all of us have broken God's commandments and have turned away from our Savior, that all of us have worshipped things or people other than God more than we have valued Him. And the invitation of God isn't just get right, it's repent. And repent means to think differently and to redirect your life. And that's the invitation of the gospel. And if you've never repented, if you've never turned your life and your heart and your direction and your attention towards Jesus, then you're invited to the table. You're invited to come. And friends, our job, Christians, our job isn't to determine who is to be invited, but to extend the invitation to all. We don't know who God's saving and not. That's his business. We're like midwives. We're just there kind of catching to help along the way. But we don't give life. We serve those who it's been given to. So friends, we must turn from idolatry and pursue humility in order to fully enjoy God and his kingdom. If you think through it, if, if you're like, man, I, I'm just so afraid financially, then perhaps God's calling you to give. Perhaps you're more guarded relationally. Maybe God's inviting you to vulnerability with him first. Maybe you're afraid to forgive because it just feels so normal now to not forgive. God is inviting you to remember his forgiveness towards you and to accept it and to trust it. Turning from idolatry isn't like, well, I'm done with that. I'm going to move on. It's an invitation towards God and his community. Notice it was a banquet hall, not a confession booth. Where there are tables to sit at with others. As we're invited to the master's banquet, as we're beginning to live into it now, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, informed by the word, and given great example by Jesus on how to do so.